Hey everyone, I've got some exciting news for you. My brand new book, E-Commerce Growth Strategy, a brand-driven approach to attract shoppers, build community and retain customers is out now. Want to catapult your brand from obscurity to unstoppable? This is the guide you've been waiting for. Drawing from years on hands-on experience and insights from this podcast from over 400 episodes we've recorded, have distilled everything into one essential playbook. Whether you're a founder, an e-commerce executive, or a C-suite bigwig, this book has got something for you. So head over to Amazon or any major book website and grab a copy. Let's turn those insights into bottom line growth. Your journey from zero to iconic starts here. So I think you only have, what's the saying? You only have one chance at a first impression, right? So we try to, and a lot of our clients try to as well. They try to create a uh, impressive, if not unique, unboxing experience. So that might mean spending a little bit more on your packaging, uh, but depending on your customer avatar, it can be well worth it. If you've been working with the same factory or factories for the last five years, are they still the best partner for you? Could there, would it make sense to have an option B to play them off of, or just an option B in case, let's say, your main factory, they suddenly face a staffing issue or they get, they get shut down because of environmental concerns for a month. It, these things all happen in China. Our intent always with every client is to give more than what they pay for. So we want them to save more by using us than they would if they were to do it by themselves. Not just in, in money, but also in time. So we can take a big chunk of, because we, we both know it's a time, it should be a time-consuming process. If it's not, uh, your internal team may not be spending the time that's needed to ensure the best results. So on today's episode, you're going to learn about how to source from China the right way. It's a great episode you do not want to miss, so do stay tuned. This is the 2X e-commerce podcast hosted by Kunle Campbell. So welcome, welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast. I am your host, Kunle Campbell. And this is the podcast where we deep dive into strategies that double your e-commerce success. And today we're unpacking the complexities of sourcing from China with a special guest called J.K. Beaton from China Product Pro. J.K. Beaton is the co-founder of the agency, China Products Pro, and he excels in navigating the intricate world of sourcing from China, from vetting factories to manufacturing and logistics design. J.K. brings a wealth of experience and insights. So today's focus essentially is his journey. That's JK's journey sourcing from China. He started from, from gap year in China to becoming an expert Chinese manufacturing and e-commerce you know, um, 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 sourcer um, to the inception of his agency, China Products Pro. So he talks about just the building blocks of, of how that started. So there'll be key talking points challenges of sourcing from China. We discuss common hurdles businesses face when looking to source products from China and how China Products Pro actually addresses these challenges, strategies for, for successful sourcing, minimizing cost and maximizing quality, right? the impact of factory visits, maintaining a dialogue with suppliers, and then I finish up with a, with a, with a, with, with a fire round or lightning round, rather, fireside lightning round of questions um, I throw at, at, at JK Bitson. So if you want to learn essentially more about, you know, um, sourcing from China, you have to listen on to this episode. Hey, John, welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast. Thank you, Kunle. Really happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this one for sure, for sure, because um, 
I think sourcing from China has is is a challenge, you know, for us. We we do have good people, but it's always good to expand, um, you know, thoughts. You, you know, just expand your expertise and just the horizon on what it takes to to, to source, you know, products in, from from China. So, what I like to also start out with is is kind of like your journey. Um, you can go as far back as you like, but but I really like to know your backstory as to how and why you founded. China product pros. Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll be glad to share. So, perhaps I'll start with present day, and then I'll go back in time to stitch it all together to paint a full picture for the audience. Um, mm. So, currently, uh, like many entrepreneurs, I, I wear a, a few different hats uh, together. So, together with my wife, we run China Product Pros. It's a full service agency. We help with finding, vetting, auditing factories. We do inspections. Help with logistics, we get the product out of the country and into the country wherever you're importing into. And we do a, a really good job, I, I like to say, on product and package design as well. Uh, we're based in Montreal with an office in Guangdong province, China. So um, I also run a seven-figure home goods brand that I started back in 2017. We're uh, working on launching another brand this year in 2024. That's really exciting. I always get pumped. It's, it's been a while, right? So it's been... what seven years now with the first brand. So looking forward to launching into a new space as well. And uh, so for me, it, uh, it, I, I won't go quite back to my childhood, but perhaps um, I'll touch on that briefly. So I grew up in Eastern Canada and a very small province and uh, with not much around. <laughs> and so I was looking for adventure from a young age. And in 2006, the opportunity came up to go to China and initially I took it. It was supposed to be a gap year from university and uh, I ended up falling in love with the country and uh, I found uh, an opportunity to pursue my studies in China. So I majored, majored in Chinese language at university and uh, I've been doing business with China ever since. So first with the mid-sized clothing company here in Montreal and uh, that's where I first got my taste of manufacturing. I mean, I, I dabbled with Alibaba back in 2007, I think it was. At the time, I wasn't fully aware of the potential the platform had, but that, that came with time and everyone's very much familiar with it right now, of course. Uh, later, I worked in management with projects uh, with China for one of Can uh, Canada's largest universities here in Montreal. So in terms mm -hmm. of entrepreneurship, I took a few kicks at the can, and uh, that, that's dating back to 2010. But the first time I actually got mm. it right was in late 2016 in e-commerce. And mm. uh, thankfully, that initial investment paid off, and then it became a seven-figure business within three years. But it, you know, it's been quite the journey. And uh, during that time, I've been you know together, together with my wife raising our three young kids. But it, it's been phenomenal. Mm. And... Uh, our superpower with our brand was always in product sourcing. We always were finding ways to get better quality, to get better pricing, to get our products to market quicker, to get those like secrets from the factory that perhaps not every, every, mm -hmm. everyone was privy to. And uh, mm -hmm. over the years, like many agencies, it started with us helping people in our network. So I was helping friends and acquaintances, people from my mastermind groups. And then mm -hmm. with time, you know, we, we figured out that I think we have something here. And uh, perhaps the last thing I'll add is, um, you know, going through and, and uh, from launching and scaling my own brand, one of my biggest um, issues with sourcing from China is lack of transparency. So there's a lot of agencies out there that have side agendas. So they may be representing you at, at an hourly rate or a package rate, but unknowingly, they're also probably getting a commission or a kickback from the factory. So it creates this biased system that I always disliked. And so my wife and I came in the space thinking, you know, we can do a, a great job at this, be a, a shining light in the space and be a, like a full seller side representing agency. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, I, I didn't know they 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 got kickbacks um, on both sides. That, that is um, not not really kick kickbacks from the factory, and then they get a fee from from mm. the sellers. Right. Very very interesting. I, I I didn't know that. Okay, interesting. Okay, I guess we should start out with. Okay, first question is: Do you do you work? Do you tend to work with startups, or do you tend to work with established e-commerce operations looking to essentially optimize or reduce their cogs, optimize their you know their the supply chain, or um, you know reduce their cogs? Yeah, so currently it's about fifty-fifty, couldn't they? Um, I we we enjoy working with both groups. So you get with startups. You know, you get that fresh enthusiasm. Um, there, there is more, more of an education piece, um, guiding and and uh, sharing best practices. Whereas for more mature brands, they generally know what they want, and uh, and you can get to work very very quickly with them. So pros and cons to each type of client, but we we work with both. Okay, okay, okay. All right. Now, just stepping back a bit. For just for for the sake of the audience, could you describe what sourcing from China entails? Just the the A to Z and or Z, sure. and from 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 your perspective, how how is it done well and 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 properly if you're to do it, you know, um, for to execute? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So for the first step um, and uh, through product ideation is at some point you're going to want to uh, see whether or not your um, your profitability calculations stand up to what the factory on the, uh, the the factory cost side is actually willing to offer so once you get to that point of validation in in the product development process you would want to reach out um, to you could do this yourself uh, or you could reach out to an agent um, Either way, you'll want to find a group of factories. We normally start by looking for anywhere from five to 10 factories where we will uh, put out uh, an RFQ, a request for quotes. And uh, depending on the level of customization or uniqueness of the product, we will wrap into that maybe a process whereby we're not sharing everything about the product quite yet. So we would share the basic product, uh, you know, its specs, uh, materials, and we would come back with quotes. Through this process, you're usually able to gauge the um, the level of responsiveness, communication. Um, certainly, you'll get a price back. The price, one of the biggest reasons why we like to get five or ten factories is because the, the variance in pricing can be can be very large. So usually you'll find a cluster somewhere in the middle. You'll have factories that'll just price you extremely high because maybe they have a ton of orders and they're like, ah, you know, if we want to take this client, they have to make it worth our while. And then you'll have factories that will lowball you and then you're left scratching your head thinking, hmm, mm-hmm. what's going on here? And then you'll have a cluster of factories kind of in the middle. Usually um, you'll end up going um, moving forward with those factories in, in the middle, um, you know, every, every case is unique, of course, that, that may vary. And uh, from there, you'll then continue talks and usually it'll move towards sampling. So you'll want to start your uh, sampling process with the factories. So you would have shortlisted it down. Maybe you're now talking to anywhere from two to four to five factories and you'll want to get samples to gauge their quality. And samples to gauge their process. And again, communication. Communication is huge in this process. Mm-hmm. So if a red flag comes up early in communication, I, I think it's really important for us as brands to, to pay attention to that. Um, and then from there, from sampling, if you're happy with the samples, you may go, you know, sampling usually takes a few, uh, few rounds. It's a very iterative process. And by the end of those rounds, hopefully it's shorter than longer, but if you want to get it right, sometimes you have to sample for four to five rounds. Uh, other times you may get it right in the second round. Rarely will you get it right in the first round. And if you do, it's probably not, you, you may be, um, you may be uh, not sampling enough. 
So mm. we, we try to get as perfect as possible of a pre-production sample before moving forward on production. Um, and are so there any rules, sorry, are there Pardon any me? rules, are there any rules like for apparel in, in comparison to say electronics? How is, is it, how do you gauge the quality um, for different categories of consumer products you source from China? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So it, it will vary and the type of sample you're able to get will vary as well. So depending on the complexity of your product, you may want to first source a close product. And what I mean by that is you may come into it and have an idea of, uh, let's say, an electronics product that has um, very specific specifications. But the cost to actually sample that uh, may be prohibitive depending on, on your business. So you may want to first get some available samples of similar products a factory has to have a look at the quality and the build mm -hmm. and the functionality of those before then moving on to further sampling steps. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to apparel, it's a, it's a little bit, usually a little bit easier again, to, it all comes down to that complexity factor. Um, but if we're talking about something like t-shirts or, or jackets, you could do the same approach. You could get a close sample or mm -hmm. you could go straight for a specific sample that's very close, if not exactly to your spec. Okay. And, and with electronics specifically, you, you often find that um, when you jump on a website like Alibaba and um, you search for, for, for the device, you, you find lots of lookalikes um, and it's, 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 especially if you're trying to, 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 to get differentiation, it's, it's a, it's a big problem. So would you, in, in that instance, kind of say, okay, we're happy with the technology in the electronic device factory. However, once we've passed this testing phase, we, we, we need a new mold, you know, that'll be unique to us, um, that, that has a tech in it, but essentially looks more on brand, like, like our brand, like the way we want to see it. Is, is, is that prudent? Would you, would you either do that in your local market in terms of get that mold or can the factory help you with like you know the 3d um you know um 3d models and 3d designs and for for, for, for that new mold if, yeah. if they were to engage with you i i love this question because it opens up a, a number of important aspects so one of which is anytime so a lot of factories will work with you on the design and they may have industrial engineers present and product designers present in their office that can do that. And that sounds great, right? Because you're taking this job that you would otherwise have to contract out if, if you don't have in-house capability and your factory's helping you. So on, on the surface, it sounds good. But then when you get into it, there can often, uh, when time passes and let's say you launch this product and sales are really, really good, there can surface... Um, arguments between you and the factory where uh, the factory claims that they have partial ownership, if not full ownership of this design because they created it. Hmm. And the same's true for the mold cost. So we actually, um, we, we like to advise our clients to pay for the mold. Some factories you could negotiate, um, let's say spreading the mold cost over a number of POs if you already have an established relationship or splitting the mold cost, but you get into the same potential argument, which is who owns the mold. But if you design your own products in the house and it, it's fully yours, there's nothing to argue about. And if you mm -hmm. fully pay for the mold, um, then the same is true. So mm -hmm. it, but of course it comes down to um, what resources you ha have at hand the time you have, but if you really want to get it right, couldn't I? Mm -hmm. I think the way to do it is to do it yourself and, uh, and then give it to the factory. Okay. So, so typically I guess the factory would have to hand you over some, some technical documentation as to just the, the layout, the electronic layout. So Correct. whether it has a circuit board, you know, where it should go rules that you can then give yeah. to your industrial designer or your industrial designer 
can actually, you know, make that request to the factory. So, um, you know, exactly what you're getting. Exactly. Yeah. There, there's definitely still going to be commu- communication around manufacturing feasibility. So yeah. you can have, you have the best design in the world, but if you don't have consultation on if it can actually be manufactured and if it can be manufactured at a good cost, then mm-hmm. you're probably wasting your time. So definitely start that conversation early and they would have someone on staff that would be able to guide your industrial designer on how best to to work with, um, let's say, the other designers working on the aesthetic side of the product as well to make sure that it was um, something that they're able to manufacture at scale. Okay. Okay, John. Okay, so so just going back to to the process you were talking about. Initially, you 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 shortlist and um, you request samples, and then um, what do you do next? Yeah. So shortlist, request samples. You get to a pre-production sample. So it's a sample in hand that should be identical to the end product once it gets through uh, manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So. And then you would go ahead and start your negotiations around your purchase order, your PO. Mm -hmm. And after placing your PO, you don't want to just place it and leave it. You want to place and follow up. So make sure it's on track. Um, Even the best factories at at communication, you know, they're busy. So I wouldn't leave the onus completely on them to keep you updated, but have a process in place within your team to reach out to them at certain points in the process to see if things are on track. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, are we still on track for, let's say, April 30th completion, right? Can you send me pictures? Can you send me videos of where things are? Can you send me a picture of the mold? Um, so it's good to ask questions. I think it's good to be thorough on our side as, as a brand. And then uh, following the uh, manufacturing, then you'd be looking at exporting it. So at this state, you'd either want to work through an agent um, or you could go straight through a freight forwarder um, that most of them usually have a customs department as well that would ha- help you with the, the full A to Z of getting it from the uh, the Chinese factory to uh, the end destination. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense. What about quality control? Yeah. So... A lot of brands will only do a single inspection, so the, the pre-shipment inspection, okay. which is great to do. I mean, you want to make sure that quality is as it's expected to be before you send it, let's say, to the UK, then you put it up for sale. The last thing any of us want as brands is to be selling a product and have a return rate that's north of, well, it depends on the product category, but north of 10% is usually not a good thing. Uh, so there's a number of recommendations I would make. Um, you can do, depending on the size of your PO, the complexity, it may or may not warrant to do an in-production inspection or audit. So you'd have someone that's something that we offer, many other agents offer it as well, or third-party services. You would have someone go in, uh, kind of usually midway, or depending on the steps involved in manufacturing a product, they would go in, make sure everything's on track, everything's to spec, see if there's any issues. It helped troubleshoot through those with you. So that's a nice additional layer. And I think to circle back, you want to make sure that you are patient with sampling. I think as brands, we're, we're often wanting to go fast, right? Mm-hmm. But if I could ever preach a time to go slow, it would be during the sampling phase. You want to get your sampling right. Because if you don't, you are going to have very expensive surprises in the future. Hmm. Let's take a short pause to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back. Hey, Commerce Trailblazers, ready for a game changer in your podcast lineup? I've got just the thing, Tread Secrets, a new podcast that's all about giving you the operational edge in e-commerce. Let's go straight to the chase. Unlike most e-commerce podcasts that dwell on marketing and growth stories, Tread Secrets dives deep into the operational heart of e-commerce. This is where the real magic happens. Why tune in? Because Tread Secrets brings you the nuts and bolts of e-commerce success. We're talking the nitty-gritty of inventory hacks, cash flow management, sales strategies, supply chain intricacies, 
product sourcing secrets and the ins and outs of financing. It's the operational wisdom you need to keep your business not just running, but thriving. Hosted by Peter Beckman, CEO of Tread, the this podcast is a treasure trove of insights from industry experts and successful e-commerce practitioners. It's like having a roundtable of mentors, each sharing their best kept operational secrets. Don't let this opportunity slip through your fingers. Search for Tread Secrets on your favorite podcast app or visit tread.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-Y-D dot I-O slash podcast. Hit the subscribe button and stay ahead of the dynamic world of e-commerce. Remember, it's T-R-E-Y-D Secrets, the podcast where e-commerce operations meets success. Tune in now and transform the way you do business. So earlier on, you you mentioned Alibaba. Uh, so everybody, most people will will go into Alibaba search. It's got a fantastic search engine there, and um, the journey begins, you know, from from, from a China sourcing standpoint. Some others, um, like ourselves, would we'll, we'll just use Alibaba as a search engine, essentially, and then we speak to to um, to, to to our eyes and 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 and, um, and feet on ground in in China. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in 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 from your perspective, what what is the appropriate you know um, route to to take? I know you you run you know China China, China Products Pro. You know, you 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 know you, you help source. But, but how how should you know people sort of or you know entrepreneurs or um, you know startup founders really sort of navigate um, that first bit, which which is the selection, the search, and the selection of of um, mm-hmm. products? What, what what are green flags and, and what are red flags? Sure. So some red flags. We'll start there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think Alibaba can be great, um, but it's full of landmines. And uh, there's a, you can't believe everything you see on there, right? So a lot of uh, suppliers will post pictures of, let's say, competing products, products they don't manufacture. So that's one thing. So be aware of that and know that even though they may have a picture of something similar or identical to what you want to make, it does not necessarily mean they have experience making it. So probe and ask questions around that. That's number one, because the last thing you want to be is a guinea pig for a factory that's trying to develop into a new product line. Sometimes it works out, but usually if it does, it's a painful route to get there, full of a lot of mistakes and, <laughs> and stress. Uh, so that's one. The second is you want to be aware of who you're working with. So in Alibaba, there's usually two types of suppliers. So the first is what's called a trade company. And they're essentially a middleman that uh, works between you as the importer and the factories. So they usually have a Rolodex of factories that they work with. And uh, the reason you want to know whether or not they're a trade, they're not, it's not necessarily a bad thing if they're a trade company, but it does mean that there's usually a premium you're paying of anywhere from 15 to 30 sometimes even up to 40% on your total order of value. So versus if you're working with a factory direct, so where you won't have that premium, but you also won't have some of the advantages of working with a, a trade company, which you know usually they have an office that's dedicated to export. They have an English speaking, uh, they have English speaking representatives. Um, and uh, so, it, it'll be a, a touch smoother, but factories, in fact, many of them these days, they also, because they want also to avoid the trade companies who take a big cut, big piece of their pie, they're also developing if they haven't already developed their own export offices. So in fact, it's becoming less and less of uh, an obstacle for working direct with factories. But if I... um so as a brand, I've thought on this in terms of the investment we make in uh, sourcing. So if you work with a trade company, again, you're looking at a premium of, of uh, 15, 25, 30% um, for every order. Um, 
versus if you're working with an agent, it's usually that same amount, anywhere from 15 to 30%-ish, but more so on your first order. Because a lot of the heavy lifting's on your first order, right? Mm-hmm. And then thereafter, um, there's substantially less work to maintain and make incremental improvements as you go along. So you don't have that added on premium that you have with a trade company order after order after order. It starts diminishing over time. So bigger upfront investment and then smaller over time. But yeah, if we come back to Alibaba, it's the other thing too is it's where everyone goes. So if you go there and your intent is to find a new supplier that maybe many are not working with that can become your gold supplier, uh, it's going to be very difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. So through our, our agency, I think it's one of the benefits is that we work through our local networks. We work through various uh, Chinese sites like uh, 1688.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, we try to find great factory partners. We usually try to skip a trade company and, uh, and find that direct to factory route. But uh, so if, if I were going on Alibaba, you know, there's, there's certain, their search engines great. Um, you want to make sure they're, they have enough history. So usually a factory that's younger than five years, uh, unless you have a very complex product and there's not a lot of factories making it, you'll probably want to avoid uh, speaking with that factory. So we usually look for ideally 10 plus years. Mm-hmm. You'll want to look at uh, the gold suppliers that have been audited by Alibaba. And in this case, it should be clear of whether or not they're a trading company or a factory. Mm-hmm. Many You'll often see a combination of uh, trading company plus factory, which usually means that they're mostly a trading company. Mm-hmm. So, interesting. In, in your experience, how do like cultural differences impact the process of negotiating and maintaining relationships with Chinese suppliers? And, and what strategies have you found effective to overcoming these these challenges yeah so it's definitely cultural differences um uh within chinese business it's not common to say no so which can cause issues so if you say i need a price decrease i need a 20 percent price decrease uh your factory might say yes but you need to be aware of what might why why how they're saying yes, what's making it possible for them to say yes. Mm. And, you know, they have their own margins to be concerned about. So it could mean on the uh, backside of that, that they are uh, going to uh, decrease quality somehow, maybe substitute materials. So it's really important as importers that we have open conversations with our factories and we're not just telling them about our pain points, but we're asking about their pain points too. So if you're negotiating on terms, uh, if you want to get better cash flow, if you're negotiating on pricing, right, you want to lower your cogs, then it's, it truly is a two-way street, right? And I think something I often try to preach to my fellow brands is that you want to consider your factory as your, as your most important business partner. And and in most cases, as product brands, they are our biggest business partner. So you want to communicate with them and have a, have a system in place where you can have a ongoing conversation. Um, the other thing too, I, um, frequently hear from brands is that they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to go in and negotiate. They have a good thing going, right? Their, Their pricing's decent. Sales are good qualities, you know, for the most part consistent. But in fact, um, in Chinese business culture, it's expected that you negotiate. And on our team, our negotiators, I see them on the, on the, on the phone and they're tearing into factories and the factories are, are going, you know, are at the same pace as them as well. And then towards the end of the conversation, everybody's laughing and they're talking about their kids. So it's, it's, perfectly possible to both be friends with your factory and to fiercely 
negotiate for better terms, better pricing, better quality, added functionality, yeah. additional packaging, whatever it might be. Yeah, um, we, yeah. From from a Western perspective, it's it's typically you pay what you see on the price tag. There's hardly any haggling, and but but when you get to to Asia, and you know many Southern Asian countries also that there's there's that haggling, um, you know, element to, to two things. I want to speak to your your home goods brand that you scaled up. Um, as you were scaling it up, what key adjustments did you need to make in your sourcing strategy to ensure? I'd say sustained visibility, you know, so, so you, 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 did you run out of stock? Do you have any stories in which you, you ran out of stock and, and there were learnings there? Um, I'll be curious yeah, to know definitely. how scaling and ops, you know, really align. Sure. So I, I find every year invariably I'm almost, I wouldn't say overhauling, but overhauling parts of the business. So, mm-hmm. In the last year, a great example is we've gone, we used to, for the longest time, send full containers. And so our strategy was wait, or the bigger order sizes, and then wait until we had a full container, and then bring it into our 3PL in the US or Canada. And then we would drip feed um, to various online platforms like Amazon, Walmart, what have you. And for the longest time, that made sense. And uh, our landed cost was decent. But of course, when we started doing the math on it, it, was, uh, it wasn't all good anymore. It worked really well at the time. But when we reassessed for this point in our business, cash flow has become more of a need. So we ended up overhauling that entire process. We were paying a lot in storage um, in the US and, and Canada with our 3PL partners. And we were paying a ton upfront um, with our factories, right? We were on FOB terms, so we would pay the balance to them once uh, it generally arrived to the U.S. Okay. So a lot of cash upfront, and so we ended up overhauling that entire process, and now we make roughly around the same order sizes, but we've negotiated down uh, good terms for us. Mm-hmm. And so we're paying less upfront. Uh, let's say we put an order in for, I don't know, two, 3,000 units for a product. So we'll pay, depending on the factory, it's usually around 20% down. And um, then we will hold stock with the factory and drip feed from China direct to our various platforms um, in North America. Does that, that mean we need to well change shipping? Um, does that mean we need to change from sea freight to, to TF freight? No, thankfully not. So, um, also air freight is a little, the pricing is a little prohibitive for us because we tend to sell heavy items. We're selling things like big storage units, uh, made of iron, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've changed from doing full containers to doing less than container load. It's LCL shipping where we will consolidate containers with other exporters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's made, I will say it's made our inventory planning a little more complicated because it, it takes just that much more to get it right compared to sending in a full container and, and having a buffer in the US. So there's a lot of considerations to think about as you switch up your shipping strategy. But I think it's it's something worthwhile for all of us to touch on because, uh, you know, your pain points in, in your business will change over time. And it's definitely been the case for us. Mm-hmm. That that is that's insightful. That's insightful. And what about it's you know when consumers are very discerning, I find, and and they're able to 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 pick out a, a quality brand, you know, over a, a low quality brand, and and there are many cues to that from the packaging. The way the manual is put together, you know, um, even the boxes in which it, it, it comes in, there's so many, many touch points. Um, where do you get all that done? Um, would, would, did, did you, 
what's what's your approach and and with the with the clients you're working with what is their approach um to because you can always shift products you know bring products from china but what differentiates you from from because a lot of when you like when you're on amazon you know from from time to time what you typically see is you you'd know like um say a a seller from mainland china and if if it's just a utility if it's just quite functional it doesn't really matter but when you start going further up the chain particularly with electronic devices you, you there are expectations right so, so what do you think are the building blocks for a the product in which you've added more value more perceived value for for to, for, for the end you know customer yeah um no I, I like this question is when we reflect on almost constantly because it's you know, it's always a battle about how to differentiate yourself from competitors that, that oftentimes sell at a cheaper price than you, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, you touched on one I think is super important, and we spend a lot of time thinking on how to improve, which is the unboxing experience. So I think you only have, what's the saying? You only have one chance at a first impression, right? Mm-hmm. So we try to, and a lot of our clients try to as well, they try to create a uh, impressive if not unique unboxing experience. So that might mean spending a little bit more on your packaging, uh, but depending on your customer avatar, it can be well worth it. And uh, another fun story, Quinlay, and, and this is a story of how we had our cake and we ate it too, was um, in our own brand, in our uh, pursuit of lowering cogs, we looked at our packaging and mm-hmm. Uh, previously, across our entire product line, we offered full color packaging. Okay? Mm. And so we thought, okay, um, how could we reduce the cost? And if we reduce the cost, what would the customer reaction be? Would it mm. be favorable? Um, so we ended up polling that. And so we did some polls. We mocked up with our design team. We looked at... Um, what it would be like if we just offered a plain white box with black printing. So very much more minimal than the box we had been offering previously. And in my opinion, and my team's opinion, of course, you know, we all have, we all create these echo chambers, so you have to be careful with that. And that's why I like to do polls. But we thought it looked more premium, you know, it was more minimalistic, it looked more modern. And so we put it out into a poll and thankfully customers largely agreed without our prompting <laughs> so they they said oh it looks more premium it, it, it looks like a, a more higher end product and so we ended up saving on on each unit anywhere from 10 to 20 cents it doesn't sound like a lot but we all know across volume that adds up so we, we were saving tens of thousands of dollars per year just based on that decision hmm. and it helped improve the product so it's, it was a nice win-win. Not not all of those decisions work out as we know, but that, it was nice mm-hmm. to see that one. Um, yeah, especially when you crowdsource the decision, you know, and you, you let data mm-hmm. sort of take its course. So what did you use to, to poll? Was it like a Facebook group poll or um, email? Yeah, so we, we use a service called Product Opinion. Okay, okay. That's a new one. Okay. And is that is that sent via email? It's similar um, to PicFu. Have you heard of PicFu before? No, I haven't. Okay, so it's so both of these they use they have a uh, a huge audience. It's actually through Amazon's uh, Mechanical Turk, which mm. is a per I think they call it like micro projects, right? So they pay them mm. a very small fee to answer questions. So both PicFu and Product Opinion they tap into that, and so you can launch a poll say a head-to-head poll of new box versus old box and you can ask mm-hmm. a simple question and get feedback and you get results uh product opinion i like because you can also send that out to your email list okay. so you can set up your poll and you can choose you can choose to use their audience or you can choose to email it to your own audience okay 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 just wanted to clarify that little bit of of, of detail um, another question I, I have here is, um, you know, what are some like unexpected logistical challenges you 
personally have faced in your journey and, and how did you address them just to, to, to ensure timely delivery without compromising on, on quality? Yeah, well, you, we've, we've definitely faced a number. I think what instantly comes to mind is the, the dreaded out of stock. So uh, we've, our uh, inventory forecasting has become more sophisticated over the years. I, in the early years, we, we were using Excel um, now we, we use, um, we use a program called so stocked, but it could be any, any other program too. Yeah. So stocks, we use it too. We've used oh, it. No way, okay. We've used it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I find that works well. So mm -hmm. it's helped, um, take any emotion out of the decision, which I think is important to pause on because back when we were doing Excel, ultimately your Excel sheet would result in an output that a human, usually myself or my operations manager, would need to go in and make a decision on. And based on whatever's happening that week, your decision might be biased, right? So you might think, oh, sales, we're crushing it. Let's order, you know, let's add 25% to that order or let's shave off a good chunk or whatever it might be. So that was a big part of helping our process it wasn't so much well it, it was also what tool we were using but it was finding ways to get out of our own way and to make data-based decisions instead of emotion-based decisions yeah i i bat on that quite often <laughs> in a, yeah you know company sits around you know data like you're, you're sitting around a campfire you know um and, and then you know make decisions off the back of that and and it rings true with yeah. with you echoing this in um in the context of of, of um of, of watering or forecasting so so good stuff there okay so for listeners this is 2024. 2023 has been challenging to say the least. The focus yeah. has always been on profitability for 2023. Those who managed to pass through 2023 just focused on most focused on profitability as against top line growth, which which is smart. It's about preservation. And I think some of that behavior is going to extend into 2024. And one of you know the ways to to, to maximize you know your, your your SDE or your profit is is really getting a, a grip on on cogs and with all they are doing what tips do you have to retailers who are essentially importing or rely on a China supply chain to to, to minimize their cogs in twenty twenty four. So I, it's a great question, and and I think it. Uh, it'll probably be a summary of some of the points I've made so far. So the, the first one, and it's worth uh, spending a bit more time on, is talk to your factories. It sounds like mm -hmm. an oversimplification, but I know so many brands that they only talk to their factories when they put in POs or if there's quality issues. Um, perhaps some of you out there that are listening can uh, certainly maybe early on in the process, uh, you know, I've, I've reflected on that too. Um, so it's, it's real for many brands. So you want to almost put a system in place so that you're talking to your factory, I'd say at a minimum every month, if not more frequently, depending on, on your volume of orders and, and products that you're manufacturing. Um, I would reassess your manufacturing setup. So if you've been working with the same factory or factories for the last five years, are they still the best partner for you? Could there, would it make sense to have an option B to play them off of? Or just an option B in case, let's say your main factory, they suddenly face a staffing issue or they get, they get shut down because of environmental concerns for a month. These hmm. things all happen in China. So it's, it's good to have a plan B, both to help you negotiate but then also to have it for when you need it if you have a plan B, it's a good idea to try test orders with it, with them. Hmm. So it's always better to have a uh, vetted and um, a, a plan B where you have experience ordering with them before versus 
let's say if your main factory shuts down and then suddenly you have to pivot and put in a 10,000 unit PO with this new factory you've never worked with. So it's a good idea to, to you know, float them over a test order while you work with your main factory to, to get your feet wet working with them. Mm. Um, the other thing is as brands, we have leverage with factories that we didn't have um, two years ago. So if you haven't negotiated recently with your factories on your pricing, on your lead time, on maybe additional customization, there's many, many different negotiation points. Uh, there's no better time. Exports are low uh, across most categories. Mm-hmm. Factories need orders and we have leverage now. So go in, talk to your factories. I remember uh, during COVID, there wasn't nearly as much leverage factories aside from some categories that were hit hard by COVID, but most factories were, they were at capacity. So if you came to them and you said, Hey, I need a 10% discount on my next order. More often than not, they were in a very good place to negotiate hard against that. Mm -hmm. And now they're, they're in a different place. So I'm not saying squeeze them for everything they're worth because you want to maintain that relationship, but be aware of it and go negotiate. You're not going to rock the boat. In fact, uh, you'll probably improve your relationship. Um, To that, if you haven't been to China, I think this is the other thing. A lot of brands have not been to China since before COVID. Uh, It's worth, it's usually worth the investment to spend the money. I find negotiations um, usually go best in person in China. So, you know, you have dinner together, you'll go out to karaoke and sing together. And then maybe you'll pop over to their office the next day and talk, um, talk about the business relationship and what you need, your pain points. And more often than not, you will get much better results than if you tried to do that over a WeChat call or an email. So mm-hmm. usually, depending on, on your company size and, and, and your uh, capacity to invest in that type of trip, it's usually worth it. You usually come back having paid for your trip so uh, as a brand out there, if you're listening to this, if you haven't gone to China in the last three to four years, go to China, meet your factory, maybe go during the Canton Fair if you want to do some scouting out for other factories. What time of the year is the Canton Fair? Uh, it's twice a year. So it's usually in October and April. So the next one's coming up in, in uh, three, yeah, three-ish months. Is it in Guangzhou or Shenzhen? Yeah, it's in Guangzhou, yeah. Okay. Um, and any more tips or... Um... Well, I, I would say again, like look at look at your entire process. Look mm-hmm. at um, I hate to say this too, because you know, obviously I have my personal bias, but if I put on my brand hat, like look at who you're working with as well. So um, are you working with a trade company? Uh, mm-hmm. if you are, chances are if you were to go direct to factory, you could probably save a ton on your cogs. Um, mm-hmm. are you working with an agent? If you are, are you aware of whether or not they're getting commissions from the factory, whether they're getting um, introduction introduction bonuses from factories. Mm-hmm. Um, I dislike most of that because it, it introduces a, a bad incentivization mm-hmm. for someone that's supposed to be on your team, right? So mm-hmm. look at that. And uh, yeah, so I would review that. I would look at your shipping strategy. There's usually chances to, to cut costs. Um, but it all comes down to wh- where your pain point is and where you forecast your pain point will be. So, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. that's also cash flow. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, then your conversation with your factory, maybe your priority shouldn't be as much on price as it should be on terms. So if you're paying 30% down and 70% on completion, maybe you try to spread that out, right? Switch so yourself to, a bit. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay, and then um, where does China Products Pro sit in in all of this? So, if if I was to, to to work with yourselves, would I have a direct relationship with the factory? Would you be Aliasen because you you know you're, you you have um, you know feet and 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 eyes on the ground and you speak you know um, the local language or, or Mandarin? What what makes how do you sort of play into into sourcing? Yeah. So we, uh, we all share factory information. Um, 
and that not everyone does that. So that's why I mentioned it first off. Mm. Um, so we, we will liaise. So a lot of clients come to us, usually one of, one of three scenarios. So yeah, they might be a new brand that is launching their first product. And so we'll help them. Um, that, that's always fun, right? Again, mm. uh, working with a brand new brand and helping that come to life. So we'll help them find and vet and, and help with communication around negotiating through the sample phase, putting in their purchase order, hel- helping them get the best pricing on on uh, on shipping um, from China to wherever to wherever it's going. Um, the other scenario is troubleshooting. So we have a mature seller um, that comes and they have an issue with their factory. It might be a quality issue. It might be a delay issue. And so we come in and we can help that type of business troubleshoot. Uh, we also certainly have mature businesses that are looking to um, save some time and some money. Our our um, intent, um, and again, as a brand owner, I can really appreciate this. Our intent always with every client is to give more than what they pay for. So we want them to save more by using us than they would if they were to do it by themselves. Not just in, in money, but also in time. So we can okay. take a big chunk of, because we, we both know it's a time, it should be a time consuming process. If it's not, uh, your internal team may not be spending the time that's needed to ensure the best results. Mm-hmm. So that's what we do. Uh, we love what we do. We love working with sellers of all different sizes. Okay. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. Makes makes a lot of sense. All right, um, we're we're coming to the top of the hour, and um, you know I've I've thoroughly enjoyed this this conversation, John. Um, I think we should we should we should wrap up. Um, but before we 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 wrap up, um, do you have any just parting piece of advice as we navigate twenty twenty four with the hindsight of you know what your experience in twenty twenty three. Yeah. Um, it'll sound like I'm harping on this at this point, but, mm-hmm. but what is the expression? You have to repeat it something like three, four, five times for mm-hmm. it to sink in. I, I know it's certainly the case when, when I get advice. So it's, it's again, talk to your factories. So I, I can't emphasize this enough. Um, you will get, and I don't mean just around business, depending on your comfort level, you can also reach out to them and, you know, Chinese new year's coming up, wish them and their family a, a happy new year. Mm-hmm. Um, Put into your schedule a uh, a monthly reach out, someone on your team. Um, I recommend doing a quarterly call with them. So ideally, not just with your factory rep, but also with some of the higher ups in the factory. So oftentimes the owners of the factory can also be present in that call. So you could have a, a strategy-based call around um you know, the, the, the next half a year or year, whatever it might be at that point. And you can do troubleshooting. Perhaps the last, ooh, I like this one. The last tip um, is if you do not have a return compensation strategy or process in place, mm. uh, you can put one in. What I mean by that is for any factory defect related returns that you get from customers, Mm-hmm. You can create a process where someone on your team is notating those down. You can pull those reports from uh, whatever platform you might be selling on. Uh, try as best as you can to document it with uh, photos and and sometimes videos if you're able to get it. So it's part of our process with our customer service. If we're processing a return, of course, you know we will be very gracious about that. Mm-hmm. But we ask, if possible, if the customer can give us more details if they can send us a photo or even a video. And then in turn, um, so you would approach your factory and ask them to compensate you for any of those units, usually by the means of adding the same amount of defective units to your next order. Mm-hmm. And it, this simple process um, can, uh, can really, really help you're, you know, add, adding back what you would have lost otherwise in, in returns. So this is yeah. also another 
uh, negotiating point with your factories if you don't have this set up already. Yeah, especially when you do it up front, it's not like, um, you know, it happens and then you react to it. You're, you're being proactive right. from the start. And that's when, you know, energies are really high when they're trying to win your business, essentially. So, mm. so that, that is, that is key. That is very, very key. Okay, John, um, for those who want to find out more about what you do, it's chinaproductpros.com. I'll link to it in the show notes. Are you active on any social media platforms? Yeah, so I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn. You can okay. follow, uh, find me and follow me, reach out to connect uh, via my full name, John Kyle Beaton. Uh, or you can reach out uh, via email at jk at chinaproductpros.com. Fantastic. It's a pleasure having you. I've learned um, a thing or two in regards to China sourcing. And thank you for coming on the 2X e-commerce podcast. Thank you, Kanaina. This was a lot of fun. I, I appreciate you having me on. Likewise, likewise. Cheers. Okay, bye for now.